Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and a podcaster. Wow, a bunch of people are in the queue. Uh, yeah, co-host the podcast, Couple Lots Reported. I do this. I uh, have a newsletter called Single Minded. Uh, yeah, so I'm mostly just going to take your calls lately, as has been the norm. But I just want to quickly talk about the um, the Tennessee book banning curriculum removal. Someone pointed out that we should be precise with these terms because there's like a difference between banning books from libraries and removing them from a curriculum. But um, uh, so in McKinn County, Tennessee, they voted to remove Mouse. You probably already heard this, but they voted to remove Mouse. The school board voted to remove Mouse, the Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel about the Holocaust by Art Spiegelman uh, from its eighth grade curriculum. If you read the minutes of the school board meeting where this 10 to zero vote took place, I think it was a 10 to zero vote. They're really embarrassing. Like there's a lot of talk about nudity and salty language, as the New York Times put it. Uh, one of the complaints was that the mouse contained inappropriate curse words and a de- depiction of a naked character. These are this is of course about the Holocaust. You're talking about like naked uh, characters, my rodents, anthropomorphic rodents on their way to be murdered. So, and we're talking about eighth graders, so they're 13 and 14. So the idea that they can't handle Holocaust content, I think, is fairly ridiculous. But I, I noticed that, like, immediately a bunch of journalists and pundits attempted to instantly tie this into the broader argument over critical race theory in schools. And it's weird, like, what sets you off and why, but this really annoyed me. Anyone can read the minutes of the school board meeting, and there's way more evidence that this is just standard school board prudishness uh, than it is, like, part of a noteworthy trend. I think this is the kind of story you could have seen in various counties in 2012 or 2002 or 1992, it just doesn't really have anything to do with the the present culture war thing. I don't think uh, maybe people disagree, but it sort of became the story yesterday. And it was like all journalists could talk about on Twitter. And it just made me reflect on how unhealthy it is that we have this technological and cultural situation where a random school board in a random county does something very, very stupid and embarrassing because this was stupid and it was embarrassing but sort of the whole country can instantly find out about it. And then everyone has to express an opinion on it. It is so important to express your opinion on it. Of course, I'm falling into that too because I'm expressing a uh, contrary opinion on it. So it also – there's this thing where like people just sort of ignore that it is is bad to challenge books on these grounds in general. It's treated as a partisan thing. Um, This is from an article just published in a publication called Crosscut. To kill a mockingbird in the hot seat at WA, Washington, uh, school district. District committee criticizes the book's language and says the way it handles race relations is problematic. Let me just read for a minute. and I'm almost done with this rant, I swear. The Mulcateo School District recently approved removing the text, removing To Kill a Mockingbird, as a required assignment for ninth graders. Under the change, the district retains the book as an option for teachers who still want to teach it. Three teachers at Kamiak High School made the request in the fall to remove Lee's iconic novel from the acquired ninth grade curriculum, said Monica Chandler, the district's director, director of curriculum and professional development, told Crosscut in an interview before the school board approved the proposal. Sorry, I'm having trouble reading today. The book will not be banned. Teachers can still uh, teach it, but... Uh, one more reading, one more quote. The teacher's objection to the book included criticism that black characters are not fully realized and that the book romanticizes the idea of a, quote, white savior. Mokilteo isn't alone in its efforts. School districts in Bellevue and throughout the country have also reconsidered Mockingbird as part of middle and high school curricula. 
I'm not saying this is a perfect parallel to what happened in Tennessee, but the asymmetry of attention is striking. Like no one cares about the actual principles here. These stories only blow up when one side or one subculture online catches wind of something that makes the other side look bad. There's no like coherent conversation about what should qualify as a good faith complaint about a book. Why? Like, should we, should we be concerned that these books will harm kids? I, I, I just find it really tiring and um, bad faith. But at a certain point, maybe if you continue to complain about people online acting in a bad faith manner, you're the sucker or you need to grow up about it. That being said, uh, what's up, A-A-B-B-B? Not sure how to pronounce that. Hello? Hey. Am I audible? You are audible. Hey, Jesse. This is not a question. It's more of an inquisition against you. Um, Do it. I... uh, listen to your podcast uh, with the author, I, I forget his name, but great podcast and I saw your, your tweets about it. And it was great, but there's one thing um, I'm in like a group of people who talk about the podcast online and there's one issue that was brought up and I agree with partially and I wanted to put it to you um, and it, the question is uh, Actually, hey, do you mind if I just fill people in on like five sentence summary? This is with Alberto yeah. Gulaba, right? Uh, this was, we, we interviewed an author, uh, who, uh, he's Filipino. He wrote a book novel based loosely on his experiences as a student at UVA where most of his friends were black and he lived with black, uh, stu- you know, people hung out with them and thought that they were sort of ghettoized from fancier UVA society. Uh, he found an agent for this book. Agent was very excited. Then the agent found out he wasn't black and subjected him to these weird, you know, he wanted to change a character to Filipino and they brought in a sensitivity reader who was black, but who was lived in the UK and was from the island. So he just he dealt with a lot of stuff. Just check out a few episodes ago on Blocked Reported. Okay, go for it. Yeah, my issue, uh, well, let me, let's talk about it and we'll see where I stand on it. But the issue is your treatment of, of honkies, of, of crackers, of, of white people. Uh, you make a point to sort of emphasize that there's a... Like the, pr- the problem is coming from like these white people who are these in publishing. Yeah. Um, you say it uh, in your tweet storm. I think relevant to it. There's like a big por- portion where like you know the problem is. These, well, I refer to like people. white white gatekeeper types. Yeah. Yeah, white gatekeeper types. Um, well, I guess that's how you put it. Maybe I mean I'm trying to remember exact the exact wording you used, but listening to the podcast. So. So I mean, one issue I have with this is I think it's very cheap and easy sort of just to dump on white people. It's become sort of a uh, a pastime for many people on sort of the woker side. I'm not saying obviously there's, there's no problems. Of course there are. But I, I don't know if, if this is being applied in a neutral way. So, like, for instance, like it, it's my my analysis of how – where the systems seem to be working currently is, you know, a, a lot of these types of environments have taken on sort of a social justice uh, kind of culture in which people are looking at things through, I guess, through an intersectional lens, which is to say the, uh, the opinions that people have are viewed in relation to sort of the matrix of oppression that, that is acting on them, and people who are more oppressed are, are seen to have a sort of more insight and they need to be, be centered in the conversation. You know, their voices need to be up, uplifted and sort of the job of 
um, sort of white people is sort of seen as, you know, being allies or being sort of conduits for these people. Now, obviously, this is kind of an oversimplification. There's a lot of different types of environments. But do you agree that's sort of vaguely true in some way? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's pretty true. And I guess I, I didn't mean to imply it was only white people are only white editors and agents, but but you do see this weird deferential spectacle, this concept of identitarian deference that Freddie DeBoer and Matt Bruding have written well about, where the white editors and agents online will basically, in this sort of embarrassing and creepy way, throw themselves at the feet of like the black people in their Twitter feed, even though these these arguments about like representation are often very abstract and like sort of elite. So. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so absolutely. I, yeah. I agree. However, but you know, your framing is, you know, the problem is these white people who are throwing themselves at the deference of these people. But then the other side of the coin is, you know, and I, I'm going to be clear, I'm not like a racist. I'm not trying to sort of single out people. Right. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, people of color who are taking this mantle who gets kind of given to them where people say, you know, we we believe you. We we invest sort of this uh, cultural force in your voice because you have an important perspective. And they use that often to not much saying often, like uh, as commonly. Hey, sorry, hello. Oh yeah. You cut out for a minute. Look, okay. sorry. Right. I, I, I don't know. So I, I don't think we disagree. Like there's, there's a huge number of sh- like really broken personalities on young adult fiction Twitter in general, and they, yeah. they really are every color of the rainbow. I think acquiring um, editors and agents are still, it's still a very white world, just because like, it's hard to get sure. into publishing, you need connections. So I, you're right, I think sometimes I spoke too loosely, but I do think a big factor here is white people whose only exposure to like other voices, to quote-unquote writers of color, and already that's a huge generalization, is people in Twitter or from people from their like the the uh, literary literature workshops they were in as an undergrad or in their MFA program, and they have no exposure to people like Alberto who are from somewhat different backgrounds and probably have different racial politics. Sure, I I agree with that. I mean, like one way that Alberto is different is because like you bring up a lot, I think is important is his class background, right? Yeah. I mean, he's he's not from the same. You brought it up, I think, in your column with him. Um, his voice is maybe more different because he's not like a legacy uh, author. I think that that's true, right? But, you know, if we're, if we're saying the problem is sort of these white gatekeepers, what, what they're responding to often is cancellation campaigns who are from people who have certain uh, or perceived as being oppressed, who, who have certain large voices in virtue of that yeah. and are, are using it to sort of destroy other people. Now, you know, most people in general are going to be good people. Now, some may be sort of narcissists or whatever. And when you enable this kind of behavior, this is what happens among sort of a very small um, percentage. And to me, I mean, for one, in one way, I, I, what, what do you mean? Do you, do you think, I mean, to, it's, to me, it seems like there's a, another side of the coin that's never talked about, which is sort of these, these people, not never, I'm not saying never, but it's way easier to complain about sort of the white people. For instance, um, like take uh, D'Angelo and Kendi, right? Everyone dumped on D'Angelo, and for good reason, right? But Kendi is very similar. Um, but I think that people are kind of concerned to say, hey, this is bad, and this is coming from a person of color, because it's kind of suspicious. People may think, you know, what are you playing at here? Maybe, 
Yeah, no, there was there was this. I mean, I, I think I just mostly agree with you. There was a spate of after the the fawning pieces about D'Angelo, people suddenly had the courage to point out that her work was crazy. And often, I've read D'Angelo's book. I, I haven't read um, How to Be Anti Racist exactly on my shelf, but so I'm not going to. Certain aspects of it that are well quoted and well known are very are very silly. Like the idea that every action is either racist or anti racist. People poke holes in that. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely the case that people are less likely to criticize it because of the identity of the author, and that's very stupid and it corrodes intellectual life. Yeah, and I think that you wouldn't have said if it, if this was a story about let's say a cadre of people of color who are invested with this sort of cultural power in virtue of that canceling them. You wouldn't say the problem is these black you know, authors who are canceled. You wouldn't say that, right? No, but but I think it's not exactly equivalent because I think the fact that these agents, and, and I do want to get to the next caller in a minute, but I, I think there's relevance to the fact that these, the people in real gatekeeping positions are white. I think that's relevant because they feel yeah. a little bit insecure about their position and because they're, they really are, I mean, if you've talked to white liberals during the meltdowns of some of these institutions, they, they have no beliefs about anything. Their beliefs are whatever they see on their Twitter feed. So, And that is partly because they don't have the – it's this weird thing where they don't quite have the standing within their organization to – I don't know. It, it's all – the racial politics are very messed up is what Well, I don't think a lack of beliefs is specific to white people. Now, maybe you could say there's a differential. I don't even know that that's true. Uh, yeah. Like there's actually going to be a difference. But, I, I mean, you say it's not the same, but, you know, I mean – I think culturally, you know, because of the way that identity politics is sort of commanded that we think about this, there are different ways in which different groups interact. And like it's it, I'm, basically what the point I'm making is it's very easy. and It's very cheap to say this is white people doing this. And there are people actually who, who believe there, there's a, a narrative that's come around recently that the source of a lot of the big problems in America is, is white people, right? I'm not saying that you think that, but there's a way in which you can kind of reinforce this notion like, oh, you know, white women elected Trump, you know, et cetera, or like, uh, you know, white yeah. men are the cause of is why we go to war. All, it, it's really stupid. It's and, really... And, and the problem, the reason it happens is because a lot of people who are sort of normie liberal types who believe like we should be sort of equal, if they're going to stand up and say, hey, stop that, it's kind of like, why do you... Wait. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Hey, I, I, I do want to get to the next call. I'm, I'm totally with you. I've written about what, you know, white women voted for Trump, I think is a ridiculous argument. It's it's conservatives voted for Trump. So it's, uh, thank you for the call, though. Patrick, what is up? Patrick, I know you are a dog, according to your photo, but you got to unmute. There we go. Sorry about that. It's, oh, I think this, uh, you're right. a dog. It's okay. It's hard to hit buttons. Oh, my paws just won't work. I don't have any. Exactly. Uh, so if you could ban any book from a school just out of pure spite. <laughs> oh, God. I'd have to think about that. There aren't that many books where I like – I'm just so uncomfortable with the idea of banning a book. That's a, that's a great question though. What about – what would it be you? The English Patient. I read that uh, during a summer reading course and I hated that book with all my heart. Not because <laughs> of anything necessarily wrong with the book. Just something about it just didn't appeal to me and I hated it. Nice. So out of pure spite. Yeah. Well, I guess on the kind of the book banning or removal from curricula kind of thing, I don't have the heart to get too mad about them right now just because I don't know if the kind of dust has been settled about kind of what happens next. So, yeah. for example, with Mouse, I love Mouse. Mouse was great. I suggested to my mom, who was an administrator at school, to replace it with some of their other Holocaust books just because I thought it would, the kids would like it more. Uh, than, say, reading Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, which I found dreadfully boring. But 
I guess the question would be, once it's removed, are they going to replace it with something else? Like, it's bad to, like, remove the book because of swears and nudity, given, like, it's kind of de- it's kind of insulting a little bit of the intelligence. But I get why the school might want to get rid of it, just because you're going to deal with, like, parents, like, harassing about why you're showing, like, cartoon mouse penises or whatever. So I understand that kind of hassle. I guess if they replace it with something like Night... It's you removed one great work of art with another great work of art. So it kind of comes to a net zero. And I guess the same could be said with uh, removing um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, depending upon what you replace it with. I guess that's just why I don't have the heart to like, like inspire any kind of rage about what's going on in the schools, at least until I know what the final outcomes are. Yeah, I mean, to me, they they ended the meeting having banned mouse and there's no signs that they're going to replace it with I, I don't mind being mad about it or thinking it's dumb i just ask myself what it means about our media ecosystem and social media ecosystem that i'm devoting much brain space to what appears to be an isolated incident in a tennessee uh random tennessee county but i get what you're saying that maybe there's some outcomes where they actually replace it with something else i just find their reasoning so prudish and dumb I mean, I agree with that, but I do think there's a lot of people who are kind of prudish and dumb, so I I kind of get why they would necessarily do it. I just don't know kind of what the next step is. Like, if they yeah. teach about the Holocaust anymore, I would be alarmed about that, but I don't necessarily know if I see that happening, just because if you kind of take it out, you have to figure out what to replace it with. There's just, like, that kind of gap in the curriculum, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Anything else, Patrick? No, that's it. Uh, cool. If you have a book that you just want to burn, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'm going to give that some thought. Maybe my own book. That'd be good. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, what's up, Ben? Hey, can you hear me? I can. Thank you. Hey, I just wanted to throw out a theory. I've been kind of um, bouncing around. Um, I think, what do you think about this? We could remove a lot of the angst around the debate around cancel culture, wokeness, whatever you want to call it. If we were to see more prominent center left figures, you know, speaking clearly and in concrete terms about the, what they often refer to vaguely as excesses and just saying, this is dumb, full stop. This is wrong, full stop. This is unjust, full stop. Instead of this sort of, it's either typically, very vague, like, oh, this is silly, this is excessive, this is embarrassing, words like that, without any reference to the actual example that's been that's been drawn drawn out, you know. Well don't you think people are sort of um a little bit afraid to criticize their own side, especially on like hot button social justice issues? Well, perhaps, but but they they will credit that it's embarrassing or excessive in some vague terms, but if they could just be specific, I'm not saying they have to go on and on about it as if they were a, you know, a right wing like radio host or something, but just be concrete and just, just unambiguous about something that goes too far and demonstrate sort of a limiting principle. I think a lot of what makes people uneasy around this stuff is there doesn't seem to be any limiting principle. Well, and, I don't think there's principle full stop. And what I, what I try to do when I write about these issues is say like, okay, let's – this controversy is about you know, uh, 
when a person from a certain group says something, should we just defer to them? What would be the downsides of that? And I found that people are very uncomfortable when you try to force them into a principal discussion. Like, do you actually believe this? Um, people really clam up or get aggressive or lash out when you ask them to actually defend the behavior they're at the very least not willing to denounce. But I'm with you that it would, I mean, I obviously wish people would speak more plainly about this. I just, why, I, I, why is it, why is it so hard to, to do that? Well, cause there's cowardice. Like people will immediately be accused of, um, of being on the wrong side. I mean, the threshold for being called a whatever is right now is so ridiculously low. I mean, you know, we just wrote about, we just talked about the Mike Pesca story. Pesca got effectively forced out at slate for saying he didn't think Don McNeil, Donald McNeil should have been fired. That's, that's all it takes in the craziest places. So, um, yeah, it's pretty messed up. Mm, it's too bad. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thanks, Beth. Shana, what's up? Howdy. How's it going? Um, I, going great, thank you. So since Katie's not here, I have to be the Washington State stand-in and just correct you on our wonderful names. It's Muckleteo. <laughs> I apologize. That's okay. Um, I, she would be much uh, better at being quippy about it and having in a more humorous way. Um, but I actually wanted to go berate you and Katie, especially since she's not here, about the just mind numbingness I've put myself in. So I, I love uh, your podcast, but I had, honestly, there's a good 40% of what y'all would talk about that I just had no idea about. I mean, that's, um, I guess, my naive self, uh, because you specialize in internet bullshit. And I was on Twitter. So I made the horrible mistake and I make my own decisions. But again, I'm going to blame you and Katie. Like, (laughs) okay, I'll get a Twitter account because I'm just dying to see what's going on. Curiosity got the best of me. Oh, God. And um, holy shit. I don't know. my goodness, I guess I was just naive and Pollyanna-ish about how humans could treat other humans when put in these situations. And uh, I, I made the mistake of even commenting on a few items. I mean, I just stuck myself right in the middle of um, being a parent about the, the mask debate. And I mean, just the... Um, impotent rage that people seem to be trapped in yeah. that it, it, it was quite um, obviously disappointing. I, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but I thought it was an interesting science experiment um, on my part as someone who's generally, I, I try to be upbeat and optimistic and just <laughs> of the, the trap I got myself into. Um, and I did try to purposely when I felt compelled to try to, express myself one-on-one with a person I I did start every comment with respectfully this you know respectfully I disagree and here's why and I know that again may sound naive or dumb but I felt I can't control this person's reaction but I can control how I communicate with them yeah so um I just think and I mean I wonder and you've talked about before that you hate you have a love-hate relationship with Twitter but you feel compelled to utilize the the media because of your career. But I just wonder 
with how popular you have become and you've created your own platform and you, and you have the podcast and you have your Substack, do you feel compelled that you really need to use Twitter? I just, I guess. No, I, 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 I have much more toward hate of a love hate relationship and I'm, Looking into ways that I can hire, uh, basically hire someone to just tweet my stuff out, so I never have to log in myself. It's it's tricky because I, I would, I, it's my needs on this front are very specific. But I no, I don't want to be on Twitter anymore. And I'm hoping to be off it soon. But to still have my account because that's what's so annoying is because of my addiction. I have a hundred sixteen thousand followers, and it absolutely helps me disseminate my stuff. And I don't want to give that up. I just I just don't want to be on it myself. So I'm I'm going to try to find a social media manager. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, I just thought, again, to give outside perspective of, of someone who's not in that that sphere, that, um, you know, I just want to tell people, like, there's some joy outside of this, uh, this uh, need for, uh, it's almost like a mass group therapy session that, that's needed on there. And I just, it, it's sad, I guess, that people get so trapped in, in their own minds yeah. um, when they're on there. Uh, no, I'm I, sorry you had to expose yourself. To that oh, no, know. but I think I appreciate this. And that, and honestly, I think that's why podcasts are becoming so popular, because people like having one on one conversations, even if you don't necessarily agree, you appreciate respect and the, be able, the ability to have an articulate and interesting conversation with people. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Jacob, what is up? Hey, good evening, Jesse. I am uh, back here after two weeks on vacation. Nice. I, I hope it was enjoyable. It was, yeah. I, I was in the United Arab Emirates for 10 days. So oh, cool. time, time difference is not exactly conducive to joining this program, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's actually what I wanted to talk about. You know, it's all, I travel a lot and well, less during the last two years, but uh, generally a lot. And I always find it really interesting to see what people in foreign countries are saying about us. And I just had a number of pandemic-related conversations in the Emirates while I was there that largely came down to the theme of, I'm seeing this being reported about the U.S. isn't actually true. And it really came down to a lot of COVID stuff. Like, a lot of people were shocked that the CDC moved its COVID quarantine down to five days. And they were like, people in the U.S. really believe that they're better off when they get COVID than people in the rest of the world do, where a standard is still anywhere from 10 to 21 days, depending on what country you're in. And I had a similar conversation with a European banker, expat, who was saying how he wanted to bring his, fam- his, ki- his family to visit their kids his kids visit their family back in the U.S. But because the UAE is vaccinating, vaccinating five-year-olds, he couldn't do it because he wasn't going to drag his children 7,000 miles across the ocean when they couldn't enter many New York City establishments without proof of vaccine. Hmm. And he was like, I'd be putting him on a 14-hour flight to sit in a hotel room all day. Yeah. And he was saying how ridiculous it was that even though he lives in the UAE where five-year-olds aren't being vaccinated, he wouldn't be allowed to bring his kids into a lot of New York City establishments where it is required for five-year-olds, even though it's not in his home country. Right. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Found, yeah. 
Yeah, I just want to log that discourse to be really interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I I, um, I haven't thought much about those uh, cross-national comparisons, but uh, that's a good point, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and like, just like another point, I was talking to a Malaysian woman who was a front desk manager at my hotel, and she was also saying how she was seeing a surge in U.S. guests coming because coming for work to her resort because they were having all sorts of meetings and conferences they couldn't have in the U.S. And she's like, they can't have a meeting in the U.S. hotel because of COVID, so they fly to Dubai to do it there instead. And yeah. they're probably upping the overall COVID risk when they come back to the U.S. because of all, all, all that extra tra- travel that they did. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate the call. Yeah, so I like thought that it was like really interesting to just like talk to foreigners and people in a foreign land yeah. about how they're perceiving things in the U.S. right now. Gotcha. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, next up is Meg D. Can you hear me? Hey, Meg. Hey. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering if the recent Real Housewives drama um, was on your radar, and if so, if you had a take on it. <laughs> No, um, it's not. What? what uh, not, is it easy to sum up? <laughs> um, yeah, well, yes and no. And essentially, it's kind of like I'm, I'm almost hoping someone who's a solid journalist can can look into it. Um, so there was a recent housewife who was let go of the franchise for, um, quote, racial, racially insensitive, insensitive, insensitive posts from 2020. And what is strange in all these articles, so you can Google it if you, you know, put in Real Housewives, whatever, they don't put what the post is. They don't say what it is. And I find that very concerning. And she's come out today basically like, you know, maybe I didn't say in the best way, but I still stand in my defense of law enforcement. So what I take away from it is essentially she was probably critical of the BLM movement pro law enforcement. But somehow that's now become so racist, you can lose your job with the added irony of in terms of people i expect to that with decorum it's not someone on a reality show so anyway and i guess it's not on your radar but it's no i'm gonna look into it i mean that's interesting this has been a thing where like you'll hear someone said something offensive or did something bad uh but it'll take several clicks down a link rabbit hole to like even figure out what they did which is a really bad trend obviously Correct. And then that's, and, and I, and then of course, if she did say something terribly offensive, I don't get on the record of defending her, but it seems to me that you would put what it is, you know, if it was a oh, here's, here's what it, the Daily Beast says one of them. I'm sick of people saying cops need more training. One Facebook post from September 2020 read, you had 18 years to teach your kids it's wrong to loot, steal, set buildings ablaze, block traffic, laser people's eyes, overturn cars, destroy buildings and attack citizens. Who failed who? He's um, she's just like pro cop. I, well, of course the Daily Beast cover. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I would recommend people look into this. I'm going to look into it more, and I appreciate you tipping me off about it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it too. All right, bye bye. Christine, what's up? Oh, okay. So there's my mic. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, I I actually am one of those foreigners. I'm calling from Sweden, and I have to thank you for sending a uh, European time zone friendly. <laughs> uh, time for this call. It's midnight here, but I mean, that's nothing. Yep. So um, um, I actually did have a question, but maybe I should speak to what, what was said earlier about how uh, the rest of the world is viewing the U.S. right now. 
and I can't speak for other people or other countries, but for me, I mean, I, I've spent a total of three years in the U.S. in the past, and I consider it like, uh, you know, my second home. Um, I've lived actually in Seattle and Bellevue, so I did kind of smile oh, yeah. at that Michael Teo thing. <laughs> um, and also I lived one year in Rochester, New York. But, I mean, I consider it kind of a, you know, home away from home. I always had to go, you know, every year or two to get my, you know, American fix. Um, it was always sort of like, a, I mean... Not gonna say beacon of liberty because that sounds kind of silly, but it's been a weird experience seeing maybe my own country emerge as like a beacon of liberty <laughs> in the last couple of years. Um, but even before COVID, it's been like I remember like a decade ago, I would look at the like the you know public debate in the U.S. and be like, oh, here are people voicing very very um, different opinions freely, and they're having a talk about it, and it's fine. Whereas here, we've always joked about how. Uh, there's like a, a discussion corridor that's like too narrow. We actually use that expression. And over like the last five or six years, it's like completely reversed. Like Swedish Twitter even is like friendlier. It's <laughs> like people from other opposite sides of the aisle go on each other's podcasts and have like civil discussions. And it's not like it's free of like, you know, toxic shit, part of my French. Um, but it's like, there's a huge difference. And it's, it's, I've, now, like I have, I have two different Twitter accounts. One is more like for my anglophone kind of interests, and that one's open. I never discuss politics or anything on it. And then I have a Swedish one for my Swedish audience that is now set to private. For the o- the only reason it's set to private is that, so that no one from my like none of my American followers will discover it. And so oh gosh, you have to protect to. yourself from the Americans. Yes. Yes, because especially I'm writing a book right now that oh, has no, it's like, it's like a popular culture thing. It's like, it has nothing to do with this, but it's like I'm afraid it, it get canceled, and it's like super stupid, probably, but maybe not. You know, you never know. Um, but actually, the question I was going to ask it was maybe more kind of uh, a humorous one. I know that you and Katie have both been traveling a lot lately, and with this like changing American landscape. Where geographically in the U.S. right now is the center of sanity? Like, where do you find, like, you know, where, where the you, you have, like, the lowest amount of, like, QAnon followers but still, like, coincide with, like, the most reasonable liberals? Like, oh, where God. would that be geographically? That's a good question. I really don't know. I like New Orleans, but I just liked it as a city. And I think there's a lot of normal people there, as well as, like, transplants who flock there because uh, – yeah. People like me ruin places like that. Uh, that's a really good question. It's just hard to say because, like, there's so many. I don't know. I think the average American is pretty normal, but the crazy people, especially in the age of social media, can so distort the conversation. Like, I, I'm in Brooklyn, and I have no, I have hardly any encounters with crazy people ever, and that includes like mask stuff, where people who are vaxxed will yeah. just eat with masks off. So I'd have to think about that. I'd be curious what other people would say, but. Um, I'll let you know if I can come yeah. up with any recommendations for sane corners of America. Yes, that would be a good topic for the uh, for Blockman Reporter too. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, find the center of sanity. Exactly. I, I like that concept. I appreciate it, Christine. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Ben will be our last caller. What is up, Ben? Hey, how's it going, Jesse? Am I coming through? Yeah, I can hear you. How's it going? Awesome. Good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on a conversation that I had um, with a friend last week, a female friend. Uh, she was, uh, the context was sort of a date that I'd gone on where um, 
uh, the girl on the date sort of was talking about mansplaining and she was like relieved that I didn't do that. And I was talking to my friend about this and she's like, that's weird. I've never felt like I've ever been mansplained to. And I think that for me, it kind of, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that conversation uh, since. And I think it's one of those things where it, it feels like um, if you have the same conversation with two different people, but one person, and this is just the example, obviously, but one person feels mansplained and the other person doesn't, that to me feels like more of a of a reveal of somebody's insecurity rather than something that the person was actually saying. Um, and I guess I was wondering if you'd thought about that in terms of just generally extrapolating that out to other things that you guys on the podcast have talked about, like misgendering or, you know, all sorts of other issues that if, if somebody feels like they're being attacked or if they, if somebody feels like they're being microaggressed, how much of that is really them revealing their sort of existing insecurities and, and also uh, how to approach that if that's the case and yeah, if um, that's approachable. Someone um, pointed me toward, there's apparently a psychological scale called the propensity or tensity toward uh, interpersonal victimhood, toward feeling like you're a victim. And okay. I think it's tricky to say in any given situation what happened, but I, I do think that if you live your life convinced that certain groups do certain things very frequently, like there are absolutely people who talk over other people and it wouldn't surprise me if like males are socialized to do that more. But if you convince yourself that all men do this constantly, then I would imagine you'll take ambiguous situations and, and, and view them that way in a way that might not be healthy. Similarly with like the, the research literature on microaggression, there's, um, correlations between people who report the most microaggressions and people who just have negative emotions in general, which mm. suggests that that's like often what's, and it's a big problem for the research literature because they, I've, I've written about it, it's complicated, but it's just, it makes it very hard to know what to make of this literature. So yeah, I think we often, especially like online, if someone tells a story and other people take it at face value, we should just remember there's prob probably another side to the story and that um, this could be, Oftentimes, a given incident is just as much about someone's personality or disposition than anything that was done to them, and it's just—it's very hard to judge on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely going to look into all that. Cool. Um, I, if I can, I, I have a follow-up question, which I—it's not really a question that is uh, as much as just a. Uh, well, I guess it's a question, but ha have you been following any of the sort of? Uh, Reddit anti-work subreddit drama that's been happening. We are about to look into that because someone had just someone tipped us off to it, and I think our our um, like new assistant producer type is going to look into it. But I'm I'm cool. very intrigued. Awesome! I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'll do one last one, Siddhartha. I can't I can't say no to you, and then I'm going to wrap it up. What's up? Thanks for having me, Jesse. Just wanted to uh, chime in on the microaggression thing. So uh, just like I, I'm, I'm myself, I'm an ethnic uh, minority, and I'm also a mixed race. Uh, when I was growing up, a lot of people would ask me where I'm from. And, uh, and it did like occasionally make me feel kind of othered, um, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm, I was born in America. I, I <laughs> identify as American. 
but but I must say that like I don't think I, when looking back, like I don't think any of those people had malice. I, at least I don't recall. Right? Yeah, um, any of those people had malice, and many of them became close friends of mine. Like, they were genuinely, genuinely interested, you know, in my in my background, um, and and that that wasn't the intention. And so like so, I do think that like a lot of those you know, perceived microaggressions are just really not aggressive at all. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, it's just like a, there's maybe like too much of a pent-up desire to see the worst in other people. Yeah. So well, there's, a, there's an interesting article by, um, he died recently, a clinical psychologist named Scott Lillianfield, where he criticizes the microaggressions research. And that is one of the points he makes is calling something an aggression obviously implies intent on the part of the people committing the act or allegedly yeah. committing the act. And that's, that's problematic for various reasons, especially given that they will then some uh, people then um, define microaggressions as having, as uh, not being intentional. So it's very confused philosophically, but obviously I think what you're saying about if you're, if you stand out, it's likely that at some point people will insult you intentionally or unintentionally. And uh, yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yeah. And so I just say like, you know, occasionally I've come across people who I think, um, you know, were, were, you know, trying to, uh, um, well, trying to cause some hurt and, uh, and like those people are just assholes, you know? Yeah, exactly. So like, I, I think that's like the extent of it. I, I do think that we ought to be, we ought to be generous, you know, to others. And I think that there are a lot of people who uh, say the wrong thing out of ignorance rather than malice. And, uh, and you know, and I just think there's, it's, it's easier to be generous to forgive them and realize that, that many of them are very, very decent people. So that's all I want to say. Sorry for the rant. No, it's not a rant. I appreciate that. And I think it's easy to forget that there's probably fewer assholes out there than we would think given where we hang out uh, online and stuff. But anyway, thank you for the call, Siddhartha. That, that's a uh, good note to end on. As always, I would ask you guys, if you like this, to tell other people about it, spread the word. Uh, and yeah, I will see you soon. I hope you all have a good weekend. Farewell.